minute. I'm beginning with a um, quotation from <clears throat> the Mahabharata. And it's um, referring to the beginning of the Kali Yuga in the Bhagavad Gita. And the Kali Yuga is the, um, the last stage in the present cycle of manifestation of the universe. And this is a um, Hindi uh, mythology and belief system, religion. So in the Mahabharata, it's describing Arjuna, um, whose beloved son has just been killed in battle. And the reason I'm beginning with this is because he's losing his sense of purpose. His beloved son has been killed. Um, And he's wondering why he's fighting the great battle anymore. So he's in such grief that he's risking losing any clarity, any insight, any clarity about life itself. And he decides that he wants to completely shut down to completely close his heart. It's just become too painful. And so um, Krishna says to him, I'm crossing the great era of darkness with you. The struggle is absolute, and your brothers are the world's only light. If your heart breaks or closes up, up, if it becomes bitter, dark, or dry, the light will be lost. No matter what, you must keep your heart open. The light is found in the center of your heart, and it shines through your eyes. They must remain open, or everything is lost. And I think this is so important for our time. So important. No matter what, you must keep your heart open. The light is found in the center of your heart and it shines through your eyes. They must remain open or everything is lost. Hopefully, this is one reason why we're here. So we're practicing mindfulness, and there are, there are so many, so many reasons why. So I'm going to try to do kind of like a broad brush, brush stroke, but really the, that quotation is really what it's about, how important. So one reason we um, pay attention, 
with mindfulness, which is this awareness infused with wisdom, is that we're, we're trying to connect the attention with what is true, what is real, rather than our um, ideas about reality or our, what we've learned intellectually before about reality. Uh, it's the insight, this is called insight meditation, the insight in this particular framework is coming from the attention connecting non-conceptually to what is real, not our defense system, but what is true, what is real. And it's said that even if we can do that for a few seconds, insight can happen. And the insight that can happen has a great impact. It's not that we're expecting insight to be happening every second all day. It's there that you just put in your time. I joke about you just punch in in the morning punch out at night, you know, just have the patience to just just keep at it, just keep at it with the patience and understanding rather than striving. So one of the um, insights that is usually um, initial uh, is, is an understanding that everything's changing. Impermanence. It's, it's called in Pali, anicca. So when you hear us giving instructions and we're, we're instructing, trying to be mindful of sound, you can see how hard it is to be mindful of sound how easy it is to get lost in the storyline or the, the word bird, right? Or, the, you know, any kind of sound, the word cough, you know? It's like we can hear a cough and we'll just be so upset because we can't meditate, right? We think we have to be meditating on the breath or a nice sound, not that sound. It's like we, we get all caught up in um, our ideas about how life should be rather than how it is. So this isn't insight into how we think life should be. It's insight into how life is. And if we asked you without any technique to just pay attention to your moment-to-moment experience, again, without the embellishment, without getting lost in the thought process, you'd see that within 10 seconds there is, has been so much change. It's like maybe there's a sound, maybe the breath, maybe a knee, something happens at the knee, maybe a thought, another thought, and then uh, maybe we remember to um, pay attention again. That could be less than five seconds. So this is the truth. This is where we take birth in... Um, our body, mind, heart, and at some point, it's um, hopefully age-appropriate at some point in our life to start start wondering that that really important spiritual question: Who am I, really? And then, of course, it's the same question: Who are you, or who are we, really? 
So the Buddha taught that when we're born, we are born into this um, ever-changing world of different um, objects happening at the six sense doors. So we have these, I like to think of them as holes. He calls them doors. Sometimes they're called sensitivities. The ear sensitivity, the eye sensitivity, the nose sensitivity, the, the taste sensitivity, this fathom long body sensitivity. And then the mind, which is chitta, consciousness, mind is considered at the heart center. And so that's why you'll hear people saying heart-mind because actually it's considered the same thing. The seat of consciousness is not considered in the brain. It's considered in the heart center here. And if, if you just even again spend, if you looked for a minute at the thought process itself, just not judging it, not getting caught in them, just if you imagine how really unfathomably sensitive the mind is. Because when there's hearing, it's actually hearing consciousness. It happens here in the mind first. Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, tasting, touching, thinking. It's happening here. And it's like an amazingly sensitive um, instrument. And all of our, all of how we are is like this um, just amazing sensitivity for information. But we've never really been trained or taught to try to understand it, really, or to try to discern, to discern with wisdom and compassion the information. So that's, again, one, why are we here? It's like, well, how do we? It sounds good to not want to shut down. But actually, of course we need to shut down if we're not protected by wisdom, if we're not protected from, by compassion. Because the, the pain in the world, we have no um, protection. And with the pleasure in the world, we have no protection. So if we just stepped outside, it's still light, and we just looked at a, a little sparrow you could start seeing all this change. The seeing isn't static. It, is, it doesn't stay the same for a second. You'd be seeing all these changes in light and color and shadow, and we would call it a bird. It's always changing. We might hear a car go by as we're sitting here. And it can be really interesting to notice the sound of the car come back to just hearing these amazing sound vibrations and textures. And then maybe we notice another thought, like, I wonder where they're going. <laughs> you know, just it's, it can be amazing to it, just in the time it takes for a car to go by, all the different ways we might be with that experience. And within that 10 seconds, so much change. 
we could have some memory of some time we were in a car and we might come back 30, 30 minutes later, right? It's like we, something happens, there's a sound, we have a memory. We think, oh, maybe that's a blue Chevy that I was in when I was in sixth grade. And wow, we're gone. That's sensitive. One of my <clears throat> most beloved descriptions of meditation is uh, by Krishnamurti. Um, and he's, he wrote this in his journal. And it doesn't come from a book, but he said that um, meditation is just to be sensitive, just to be vulnerable, like that new green leaf that was born yesterday, to face rain, wind, darkness, and light. And if you, if you, I think there's something very exquisite in sitting in spring because of that, that newborn leaf. It's like a newborn moment, the newborn moment, the newborn moment, and it passes away. And it's no wonder it's hard (laughs) to see clearly. We wonder, well, you know, we just put a day in, why is it, oh, you're exhausted, right? Why is it so hard? Well, it's much easier to not be here. If it was easy to be here, we'd all be, you know, it would be a piece of cake. And we would have already had the training. I think one of my favorite things about being on retreat is is just having the time <laughs> just to be and just you know it, you're we're not busy and I remember when I was on retreat just now it's like I remember coming outside and seeing the sun coming up and noticing the shadows of just the tree that actually had no leaves in it. It's a plumeria tree in the winter, but just the shadows and them moving um, and not getting to see that when I'm so busy. Morning shadows, the early morning light shadows, they're exquisite. And yet how much do I miss it, right? We miss so much. So the um, second aspect of that everything is changing um, is that experience is unreliable. That's dukkha, the second insight that we tend to have. Insight meaning a truth that we all share, all of us share. A truth of existence meaning the red Fs that are being born right now in the woods and the birds and... Um, the celestial beings, the humans, all of us share these truths. That everything that takes birth will pass away. Everything conditioned will pass away. Impermanence, anicca, 
And then because of impermanence, experience is unreliable. You can't hold on to it. So being able to wrap our minds around that, to wrap our minds around that each moment is actually... We can say it more poetically and beautifully, each moment is new, but also it means each moment is unknown. Each moment is unexpected. And then we can see where that can be exciting or interesting or scary. <laughs> you know, depending on where we land on this any, any second, it's learning how to um, be with this with more and more skill rather than more and more defense. In this um, vast array uh, in the world of meditation, you can kind of um, divide techniques of meditation into two, two areas. And one is um, fixed concentration, and one is momentary concentration. So fixed concentration would be if we turn the lights off right now and pulled the blinds down so it was really dark in here. And then we put a candle up front. The, in the fixed concentration type of meditation, we would ask you to just keep staring at the candle. And if some sensation started happening in your lower back, we would say ignore it and just keep looking at the candle. If fear happened, we'd say ignore it, keep staring at the candle. If you notice the breath, if your attention got called to the breath, we'd say ignore it, go back to the candle. If a thought happened, we'd say ignore it. You're probably getting the idea. Ignore, 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 ignore. Repress, 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 repress. And the goal of that meditation is bliss. Tranquility, bliss. Why? We're ignoring everything. We're repressing everything. It feels wonderful. It's usually why people come to meditation. It's why I came to meditation. I wanted everything to just stop. I wanted it all to stop. I wasn't interested in this other type that we're teaching. It was a big shock when I started grasping what I had gotten myself into my first retreat because I just so wanted just that total, utter ignoring of everything. I wouldn't say that I would say I understood that then. Um, So the momentary concentration you can, this is what I've been describing. So it's a training so that if there's a, a sound of a cough and then the sound of a car and then some body sensations at your knee and then the thought about it and then maybe some fear and then maybe uh, the breath calls the attention. You get the idea. That's momentary concentration. And it takes incredible skill to be with life as it is. Incredible training. And so in the Vipassana practice, there's a compromise between these two types of meditation. The compromise is called the anchor. 
And the anchor is you're choosing a small area of the universe to pay attention to. Not exactly like the candle, but somewhat. It's just that the anchor in the Vipassana practice is meant to be as pretty neutral. Not not painful, not pleasurable, somewhat neutral. Traditionally, it's usually the breath. But you notice that the breath is moving. So that's the compromise. It's like you're coming back to one thing, um, but it's moving. So you're learning how to be in a small area with um, some area of the universe that's moving. We found in our early years of teaching that the breath doesn't always work for everybody as an anchor. Sometimes the body isn't a safe place. It's not neutral. So for me, when I first started, I found that even though no one taught it to me, I started anchoring with sound. No one gave me permission for it, but it was the only safe place I could find for me that was relatively, again, relatively neutral. Nothing is completely neutral, but you try to find something. So when, when I describe this, this is very important, because you'll hear that we offer several anchors to try out. And I like to think of them as plan A, plan B, plan C. So <laughs> you have one anchor that you really use a lot, If that's not working, you have a backup anchor, and then you have another backup anchor. And I have about five or six, really. It's nice to bring in some loving-kindness as an anchor. Um, In some ways, we need all the help we can get. And the training is learning how to have more skillful means with whatever whatever is appearing. So for now, let's go back to the compromise. The instruction in Vipassana is to have some kind of anchor. So I'm going to describe this with the breath, but it could be that we're using the sound. And I'll I'll give that example in a minute. It could be that you're using your hands and the front of your body. It's called sitting, touching, and anchor. But say it's the breath. The initial instruction is to, when you notice your attention is lost in thinking, you come back to something the breath. But then if a sound calls the attention, it'll be choiceless. You'll find that the attention is actually listening to the sound of the car going by. Or it it just, you know, it's immediate. It's like someone sneezes, boom, you're there. You're not with the breath anymore. No problem. Because Vipassana is going in the direction of being with just moment-to-moment change. There's no, there's no, there's considered no problem that the attention has shifted off the breath. You include it. And this is where you start seeing the difference between fixed and momentary. With, with momentary concentration, you're learning how to be mindful of everything so you can include everything that happens. It's, it's moving in the direction of less repression, less ignoring less control, unless you need it. So there's considered, like say a bunch of anger comes up and we really aren't interested in it, we can't be mindful of it, it's taking over, then we say, 
go to the breath, right? You know, move away from it. Find something neutral to be with to build up the, the rest. And that's the key. The anchor is supposed to be seclusion. We talked about it last night. Seclusion. Concentration is a kind of seclusion and a rest. <coughs> and so this is the same, say, let's say, use the example of someone who's doing hearing as an anchor. Then if they're with hearing and the breath calls their attention, they go to the breath and then come back to the sound. If a thought calls the attention, <coughs> they, go, you know, they, they notice thinking, come back to hearing. Is that making sense to you? It's like you just have something you come back to. It's called a primary anchor. <coughs> and it might, let's give it a few more minutes. Um, what makes this a little bit more complex is that you can always use an anchor for a very light concentration or you can use it to be mindful of and so say I'll give the example of the movement of the breath a lot of what we're doing in practice, whether we're being with the movement of our legs or the movement of sound or the movement of sight or whatever we're paying attention to, the idea is that it's hard enough to just connect the attention and sustain it. So it's fun to describe that with the breath because it's so easy to describe it. You try to connect the attention. It's rising, falling, right? And you bring it there. It might be in the middle of the rising. It might be at the beginning of the falling. But you, it's kind of like you run, just like catching a wave. You paddle out, you catch the wave, and you ride it. And that's concentration, just being able to catch it and sustain the attention through the life of it. And this is why the first insight is usually impermanence, because you're actually noticing that no matter what you pay attention to, it's moving, it's a, if it's alive. You want your breath to be moving, <laughs> by the way. You don't really want it to stop, right? You know, if you pay attention to the heart, you don't want it to stop. You don't, you know, it's like that's the bottom line, really. But when you try to actually be mindful of it, it takes a lot of skill. So if you get frustrated, that's normal. You're doing a good job if you're getting frustrated at times because it's actually quite hard. Because what I'm describing isn't even being mindful yet. And a lot of the practice, I really, I, I always do it. It's like, I'm going to go to stand right now. You notice the mental intention to stand. Because if you don't notice it, you're probably going to miss the experience. Okay, about to stand. And then I'll stand. How many times do we miss it? Incredible, right? About to sit. It's a miracle if we catch it, right? 
but that's the concentration. That's the momentary concentration, being with a being with anything as it moves, walking around, just trying to be with your movement as it moves. And then once in a while, and you can build on this, you build on it, when you have enough energy, concentration, mindfulness, you start understanding the nature. Vipassana is understanding the nature of how things are. So if you are with a step and you start to notice movement, that's air element, or with the breath, if you notice movement, you notice what happens to it. That's mindfulness. If you, if you, if you, you know, it's almost like we remember a thought, they're moving so quickly, but if you catch the tail end of it, like a shooting star or a comet, you're noticing usually the end of the thought or the memory of the end of the thought. That's mindfulness. If you, if you start noticing loneliness, very hard. You think it's hard to be with a sound. You think it's hard to be with a breath. Well, try being with loneliness. Usually we're caught up in some story and really hard to drop into our body and noticing any corresponding physical sensations and to be interested in the birth, life, and death of loneliness. Very few of us catch the end of loneliness. We're usually something else has distracted us, thank God, right? I mean, it's like, finally, you know, we're, it's over. But we didn't even really see it over. But there's some relief, maybe some minutes later, that we're not in it anymore. So this is the training that we try to learn how to just be with things as they're moving. And then at times, you apply investigation. It's like, and it's the non-conceptual investigation, which is really humility. It's all humility. It's all being willing not to know what a breath is, or you'll never be mindful of it. And it's really the same if you're with a friend. If you think you know who your friend is, you really won't be there with them. If you think you know what a peony is, I would encourage you all along the edge of um, the wall outside there are these amazing looking peony plants. And uh, they're probably going to open while we're here. And every day if you walk by, you might get to know peonies in a very different way. What I learned in my early practice is that this light concentration creates a stability and a calm that's really important. You, You can't underestimate it, but you don't want to overestimate it. It's, it's just just enough. It's just enough concentration to then be able to see clearly. It's in the service of being able to see clearly, always. And the, the best example of that is if you had a um, pond or a puddle even, but a pond that's um, the surface is all um, disturbed 
like a windy, stormy, rainy day. Um, and when, you, when the surface of a pond is disturbed, you can't see into it, and you can't see anything reflected in it. So the purpose of the anchor is stilling the water of our mind. It's like it's stilling the surface of the mind because our training isn't to be calm or still. Our training is to be disturbed. And that's very familiar. It's, it's all too familiar. <laughs> so the, we develop this ability to... Um, and don't try to do it for too long. Give it a few seconds. Take a few steps. Be with a few breaths. Be with some sound. Um, and just see what happens. If you try to do it all day, it's depressing. Mm-hmm. It's too, it, you're putting too much time onto timelessness. It, we're creating stress where there's no need for stress. Stress is getting caught up in time. And this is the opposite. It's learning to let go of that stress, let go of the past and future, and just be with things right now. And there's lots of energy in right now. There's less and less energy in the past and the future. So the anchor, again, is meant to be a kind of rest. But learning how to do it, of course it takes energy and it can be tiring. Um, but that the concept of it is really that you're, you're, not, you're, you're ignoring a lot and then you're staying with it. But if something is predominant, if it calls your attention, you don't fight it, you don't struggle with it. That takes energy. You just go. In fact, you don't even just go. You find yourself at some um, intense sensation at your knee. Or certainly, if you sit long enough, you're going to be in touch with hardness. right? Your butt is going to get hard. It's going to call the attention. And that's good. <laughs> we might not think it's good. But you know, we all talk about embodiment and loving the earth. But do we want to be with earth element? I don't think so. (laughs) Try laying on it without any cushion. It's hard. Try laying against your bones. Our bones are earth element. We need them. We need this hardness. What would happen if we didn't have it? We'd just (laughs) float away, right? I mean, it's pretty funny, but, you know, this is the always, you have to have some humor with it. How uninterested we really are in Earth, and the Earth, it's no wonder the Earth's about to cave. No one's interested in the direct experience. It's all nice to talk lovely about it, but to actually directly experience it. Okay, so each element has a positive and a negative or pleasant or unpleasant side, of course. So this, the pleasant side of earth element is soft. 
the unpleasant aspect of earth is hard. We're trying to learn how to open to and allow both stretch into. But if you can't stretch into it, you learn to move your attention to something less solid, like air, the breath. The breath is very light. It's air. So air element, it's, it's pleasant and unpleasant side. Air is, um, <clears throat> the pleasant is tingling, um, light vibration, light movement, light pressure, pressure, light pressure, light movement. And that the um, unpleasant side is pulling, throbbing, um, tight. Tight is a good one, right? Not one of our favorites, but that's air element. Sometimes when I'm sitting and there's some part of my body that's getting, you know, seemingly so tight, I just, I just start noting tight, tight, tight. But, you know, I'm not meaning that you do this out loud, but I'll be like, wow, <laughs> how can this be so tight? Wow. And then I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's air element. You know, and, but then I move away from it. Bring your attention into it. Check it out. But you don't have to stay. You're not trying to get rid of it. You're trying to understand it. What are we trying to understand? Who am I? What is our body free from our, our ideas about it? Why do we think I am my body? It's the, it's the biggest misperception that we operate under. We, our body is made up of earth, air, fire, and water that's constantly changing. It just isn't the same body, folks, that happened seven years ago or 20 years ago. I must say, when I look in the mirror now, I'm unrecognizable to myself. You know, I look at pictures of myself when I was younger, and I'm like, wow, you know, this is amazing, really. It's shocking. It isn't the same body. It isn't, you know. And I can say, oh, I was born when I was here, and, you know, I did this at three. But it's like the, the infection, the infection we all have is the belief that I am the body or that you are your body. It's the suffering. We're stewards. It doesn't mean we're not responsible. We're born, we take responsibility for getting born and taking care. Fire element, we tend to like warm or cool. We don't tend to like burning or cold. So with all of these, it's, it's, it's knowing that you learn how to stretch a bit, but then you go back to the anchor. You stretch a bit, you go back to the anchor. Because we're trying to learn how to stretch and understand it's not an endurance test to fail. Water element flowing, streaming, stuck. The opposite.
So another way to describe the Vipassana practice is that you learn how to anchor, rest, build up energy, so you can be with the moment-to-moment change at the six sense doors. There's this flowing of life happening, going very quickly. More and more, the idea is that you can kind of run and jump into it and flow into it. And then when you get lost, or you get really identified with something, if you get stuck in any way, you move back to the anchor and rest, build up the energy. The Buddha described energy as courage. Courageous energy, courage. You know, so when you don't have it, you don't have to do it. You build up the energy. That's the purpose of the anchor. Sitting, walking, standing, lying. This winter, um, I had some friends visit at Christmas time. Two twin boys that just um, were at their end of their 13 year um, and their parents. And they came out to this land we have on the Big Island. And we went for a walk. And we got to this part that isn't mowed and the, the weeds are just gigantic. And one of the boys found a, a monarch butterfly chrysalis. Um, there's just one minor detail. <laughs> he took it from the plant. So he came running over to me, but it was in his hand. He didn't leave it on the plant. So, you know, these are always inter- interesting moments with young people, right? Like, I didn't want to go, whoa, <laughs> this is not very good. It's great you found it, right? But so uh, he was holding it in his hand. And I don't know if you've all seen them, but they're just exquisitely beautiful. They're turquoise, and they have these gold beads around the top of the um, where it's supposed to be holding on to the stem. Uh, and this was really um, kind of going from turquoise to lavender. And I haven't seen one for a while. I used to live in New England, but I've lived in Hawaii since 1983, and... Um, haven't seen them very often, but they're becoming more predominant in this part of um, Hawaii, the monarchs. So anyway, to make a long story short, um, this one of the boys who found it wanted to keep it and bring it on the plane back home to California, and I was like, uh-uh, that's not a good idea. So it was so sweet. He carried it for two miles in his hand, and then... Um, he rode in the car with me back to where I live, and then um, it was dark and cool. So I said, let's leave it on the dashboard so that um, I don't want to bring it in the house where there's light or it's warmer. And then he drove off with his family. Um, and I left myself, you know, getting old, I left myself a huge note that said, don't forget the monarch uh, in the morning. So I, made, I got up, had a cup of tea, um, and I went out there, and I, I had my cell phone with me because I was also expecting a call at that early hour. Uh, so I went over to the car, totally assuming that it was going to be a chrysalis for some days. And I opened the door of the car, and it was being born. And it was coming out of the um, 
chrysalis and it was sliding off the dashboard. And so I caught it with my cell phone. It was a great birth. <laughs> it's just like, how funny, right? And then I was um, supposed to be at a meeting that day uh, that I had to drive to, but the meeting wasn't till about one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so I haven't, again, been around chrysalises or butterflies for a while. So at first, I completely forgot that it didn't have to eat, you know, plants. So I have actually planted a plant that butterfly that monarchs eat in my yard, and I brought it over there and I tried to get it off my hand and um, was trying to get it off and it wouldn't leave. And then I got this leaf that they like to eat, forgetting that they don't eat. At that point, the caterpillars eat these leaves. So I was trying to get it on, and it wouldn't leave my hand. For, so for about a half an hour or an hour, I kept trying to get the butterfly that was newborn off my hand, and it wouldn't. And it was so beautiful. And it was like a newborn rabbit or something. It was, it's you know like how their ears are floppy or any newborn. It's, it was all floppy and um, wet. And uh, wouldn't leave my hand. <laughs> so then, at a certain point, I surrendered to being with this butterfly until it flew. But I, I just had no, I, I had no idea. And this is what I mean by humility. It's like I've never been through this before, and can I show up for it? Because it required a tremendous amount of time that I didn't have, or and patience, which at the moment I didn't have. Um, and I just finally surrendered, and it was amazing. One of the things that I noticed that I'm going to share you, not a six-hour description of a butterfly birth um, <laughs> until they fly, but um, after a while, it pooped. It pooped green this big green thing, like a little green poop, but it was big. And I was like, ah, it poops like me. You know, and then... <laughs> I mean, you never read about that, right? <laughs> Who reads about green poop coming out of a newborn butterfly? And then it started like, just like a birth, all this water came out. And, you know, just all over me. And then it bled red blood. You know, and I was just in total awe, just this this experience. Um, And I kept checking once in a while. It really wouldn't leave me, my hand. And um, so to kind of speed up, at a certain point, and I didn't notice it until it changed, it started wanting to put all its weight on me. Like it, it, I didn't realize it had been not attached. It, you know, it was just sort of light on its feet. And then it started putting all its weight on me. And then it started really resting. Just totally resting and resting and resting and resting. And then, you know, two hours later, it, it did its first um, attempt to open its wings. And then when it would do that, it would always do four. Four flaps, exhaustion. This took two more hours. Four flaps, exhaustion. Four flaps, exhaustion. Um, 
And slowly it started going up from like this part of my hand, the palm, all the way up. And then it started climbing up my finger. And then this was the last two hours. It started holding on really tight. And this, this, I'm describing this for a reason. <laughs> this is not just some, you know, odd story that Michelle tells. You know, it's like rest, anchor, sixth sense door awareness, fly. Rest, anchor, sixth door awareness, fly. And when you go to let go, let go of the anchor, you might find that you're holding on tighter than ever. You might start having thought patterns where you're feeling more identified than you ever have, or more afraid, or with more doubt. That's how this goes. It's amazing. It's the same process always, outside, inside. And to see it so dramatically, I would never, even the last bit was the most amazing. Most amazing with how hard and tight it would hold on. And then it, it, it started to do more of the wings beating and then holding on tight. And then it finally um, flew. But it really didn't fly. It just kind of soared down. I had brought it outside by that point, soared down. And then I'm like, I gotta go to a meeting. (laughs) And then it did it. I never saw it fly off. It was still, guess what it was still doing? Resting. Even when it soared down and, and rested, it flew a little, it rested, it, I don't know if it was hours. I didn't get back home till later that day, but it it had flown off. Um, But just think of this for yourself. Just remember, we are a culture that has a Starbucks on every corner. What does that mean? It's always the meaning. It means we're not into rest. (laughs) That's the little clue. We don't, we don't like this rest business. We don't like anchoring. You know, if somebody tells you there's some secret teaching that you know you can get to right now, and all you have to do is blah 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 or whatever, it's like I'll tell you the goal of a pasna. We're gonna just do it, right? We just like we're gonna put all our willpower in it, and we're gonna get it done probably in, before the course ends, right? This is just our training. We get the PhD, we put it on the wall, and we're ready for the next thing. That's how we get our identity. But this isn't like this. This this just is the opposite. It doesn't work this way. It's the art of life. It's meant to help us see our striving. It's meant to help us see our expectation, our agenda, etc. But not to be fooled by it because it doesn't work in this. It's foolproof. It's very pure. That's why I love it so much. The truth, you can't outwit it. It's, the truth is foolproof. Thank, thankfully, thankfully, there's something we can't outwit that our defenses don't work on. Hallelujah.
So we need a lot of kindness with this process. We need a lot of compassion. We're getting taught more and more that comfort is more important than the truth. I'd like to end with a quotation from Srinazargadatta Maharaj from the book I Am That. Everybody does the same mistake, refusing the means but wanting the ends. You want peace and harmony in the world but refuse to have them in yourself. My teacher would tell me something, and then he would always say, Now keep quiet. Don't go on ruminating all the time. Stop. Be silent. Just keep quiet. Let's sit for a minute. 